song. It's, it's a wonderful song. You'd really like to hear belted from a congregation. <laughs> wow. I want you to turn, if you would, please, to John chapter 16. John 16. And you might really want to turn to it if, if you are able. I'd like to read it. And before I read it, I want to get your mind geared up to realize that what Jesus is about to say to his immediate disciples has to do with his ascension, his ascension to heaven, to the Father's right hand, which is what we celebrate this evening. Jesus tells them in this passage that he is going somewhere beneficial for them. And it's from that position next to the Heavenly Father that the Holy Spirit will be sent to them to help them to fulfill Jesus Christ's purpose in the earth. So I'm going to read the text, but listen for the ascension and what he expects to follow it. Let us pray. Lord, I pray and I ask your blessing upon this time reading your word and the time I spent preparing a message, I pray that it would not fall on deaf ears, that it also would come from my lips um, rightly spoken. May you be praised, Jesus. Amen. So John 16, verses 1 through 15. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You may be seated. So in verses 1 through 4, you need to realize that Jesus is speaking to his immediate disciples, okay? 
It was the apostles and others who were persecuted by the Jewish religious community. The first Christians were put, were put out of the synagogues. We're not put out of the synagogues today, so to speak. But if you remember, Saul, who became Paul, was one of the chief persecutors of the early church. Furthermore, when those Jewish uh, abusers mistreated the Christians, even killing some, they told themselves they were serving God, according to verse 2. And you and I may wonder, how could someone work so hard against the church and still think they are serving God? The answer? It's because they imagine things about God that, that were not true about him or his character. They were not worshiping the true God. They were worshiping a God of their imagination. People today still do this, even in the church. They think they are Christian, and yet they live and disobey clear scriptural teachings. How is that possible? God tells us about himself in his word, okay, and people either cover their ears because they don't like what they hear, or... They just don't spend any time in the Bible. And so they don't know him. They've never, they never learn about him as they should. And, and so they think, and so they think foolishly. Jesus pretty much says this is, this is the case in verse 3. He explains they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Christian, you've got to know who you're dealing with. Your imagination of God is insufficient. Your wishes, your wishes for him to be a certain way that he is not is likely blasphemy. I recently heard a good podcast And on the podcast, someone said this, and it it resonated with me. They said, in Scripture, authority is personal and and is a person, the Lord. And those who are his friends, those who are his friends, they know the kind of person he is. They've learned about him throughout life from what he has said of himself in his word. And so when they hear something that sounds contrary to what they know of their friend, it sticks out to them. It doesn't smell right. So the first uh, century synagogues wanted to mistreat the followers of Jesus Christ. Because 
they did not really know God. They had been worshiping something else. And that is, that is the God thing for whom they imprisoned and killed Christians. It wasn't God. It was their God thing. But Jesus warned them and told them, I'm going away, but it's for your advantage. Now, you got to step back and think about that. If you were one of these disciples, my advantage, our advantage, that you're going away? He just had told them about this persecution that could come from the synagogues, from their religious superiors. And then he says, I'm going away, but it's for your advantage. I doubt that's how they saw it. They did not want to hear him say it. I'm sure of that. They wanted the Lord to stick around forever. He was their teacher. He could protect them. But Jesus said in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Oh. This is in reference to Pentecost, mostly. This sending the helper to you. When the Father and the Son, as we understand it, dispatch the Holy Spirit upon Peter, upon others from heaven, the day of Pentecost. But we're not there yet. That's 10 days from now we would celebrate Pentecost. We're at the ascension. Where it is your advantage that I go away. Now, if you remember the Lord, he was going to the Father, to his Father, to be given the kingdom. All authority in heaven and on earth would be turned over to him. The ascension is the fulfillment of Daniel's wonderful prophecy in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says. Daniel wrote this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is Daniel foreseeing the ascension of Jesus Christ. A brief side note. I know some of you have heard this before. This is the night vision that Jesus quotes 
from in Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse. When he told his hearers, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When he quotes from Daniel, Jesus wasn't talking about some far-in-the-future second coming back to the earth. He was referring to the very near-future destruction of Jerusalem and all those horrific events that he was talking about that led up to 70 A.D. And those things, he said, as he's about to quote Daniel, would be proof to the tribes of Israel that the Son of Man had indeed taken his place of authority in heaven and had cast down upon them for their wicked harlotry the judgment of the ages. And when they experienced all those devastating events, then they would realize truly the Son of Man had come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He was who he said he was. But I digress. For the disciples, on the other hand, this coming in the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days is to their advantage. That's what Jesus said. It is to your advantage that I go away. He says when he goes away, the helper comes. So now let's take a look at verses 5 through 8. Especially look at verse 8. And when he comes, he's referring to the helper, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit, the helper, comes and the church is waiting for him. The Holy Spirit is the catalyst, you might say. He's the one who will bring change by convicting the world. This means that the Holy Spirit will press God's word against people's souls and consciences. In verse 9, Jesus describes the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He says he will convict the world Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Those three things seem a little mysterious when you read them. This convicting power. He will convict, verse 9, people of their sin. The Holy Spirit convicts people by their sin, by upholding the king's laws and impressing on all 
the need to repent. So God's word is spoken. The king's laws are set forth. And it makes people feel guilty of their sin. This is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit upon sin. This is a great benefit for members of the church. It's a great benefit for the world around us to be convicted of their sin. Secondly, he will convict through the preaching of the word by the king's people, the church. Because Jesus Christ has gone to the Father, he says. He rules from there while we teach his kingdom here. We need the Holy Spirit to use the church to bring God's word and the conviction. He will convict all rulers, thirdly. He will convict all rulers. For if Jesus Christ judges the ruler of the whole world, as it says here in verse 11, who we would consider to be Satan, then certainly all other powers and authorities will be judged as well. Certainly the kings and magistrates of all the peoples will come under judgment too. And after all, didn't the Daniel passage refer to all peoples, nations, and languages? With Jesus on his throne in heaven and the Holy Spirit working for his purposes on earth, there's no way the wicked will stand against the church now. There's no way. The gates of hell cannot even prevail against the church. Jesus said so. The helper is on our side and he will do the heavy lifting for Jesus and for us. As we offer to sinners the gospel of God's Son, which is the King's peace treaty to men. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now let me take a minute to ask you, would Jesus Christ, given all authority over heaven and earth, along with this Holy Spirit sent to initiate and to orchestrate his will among us. What could possibly go wrong? Is it even conceivable that the gates of hell would prevail against those onward Christian soldiers? Could any enemy do anything to foil or frustrate Jesus Christ's victorious kingship? As he rules from heaven. Think about it. How could people, or devils for that matter, ever succeed to undermine, to undermine the success of his kingdom? I do not believe Jesus Christ as king can ever be successfully opposed. 
However, I do think his Christian army, us, I do think his Christian army can fall prey to enemy tactics. And I think often those tactics enter in even to the church. Christians can be tempted, can't we? We can be fooled. We can be lazy. We can be self-indulgent, unfaithful, disloyal. And these things, they lead to guilt, and they should. And doubt comes with guilt because we feel like maybe we screwed something up. Fear comes with doubt. We are not so sure of ourselves all of a sudden. We get confused. We, we begin to be dejected. Dejected. And then we might begin to think, as so many seem to today, it's no use. It's no use. We will never win. Maybe we're not supposed to win. That's what we tell ourselves. Maybe we're not supposed to win. And then the tempter comes to deceive. The history of the church demonstrates people's obedience and disobedience. There's often ebbs and flows to this. But I just want to consider where we are today, where the church is today. The church we experience in the Western world. What's going on in our heads and hearts? It is a bit disappointing. For one thing, we, uh, we've gotten rid of the king's rules. You know, the law of God. We've taken snippets of New Testament Bible chapters or fragments of sentences and used them incorrectly. You've heard it said. We're not under the law, we are under grace. Those words are biblical words. But today... The meaning has been morphed from what Paul meant. Today we believe it means that you can throw out God's law completely and the Old Testament for that matter. That's an oversimplification. But we do have preachers even in the surrounding area who do not believe that God's law is meant for the world today. One says the Lord's Day no longer needs to be respected as the day for Sabbath rest and worship. The law is no longer binding, the argument goes. Unless Jesus said it, unless Jesus said it, it can be ignored. Though, I remind you, Jesus Christ has kept God's law intact. He fully obeyed it, and he also taught that not a jot or tittle was to be discarded. So what happened? The church has fallen prey to false teaching. 
when they were told that they could dis- disconnect themselves from the law of God. The world, the world is so thankful for churchmen who teach this. For once you erase God's law, then the sinner is free to do as he pleases without guilt. The abandonment of God's law has a name. It's called antinomianism, meaning against, anti, the law. Nomos. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit comes to convict men of their sins. And no one, not even theologians or popular pastors, can erase the guilt of sin by trying to get rid of his law. That's one thing. The Christian West is also been duped to believe we cannot accomplish Jesus Christ's kingdom upon the earth, but should leave the work to Jesus when he comes back again. It's so wrong-headed, for he, he sent the Holy Spirit to work with us. And he told us it was for our advantage that he was going away. Look, it was and is Jesus' intention that we are his hands and feet and arms and ears and legs. Jesus has gone to heaven to sit on the throne. The throne is there. We are here as ambassadors of the king. We should be taking ground, not giving it up. What's more is that he gained the victory and he sends his church, what, to enforce his crown rights now. He took on the form of a servant, he died, and now he's king. So a second way the enemy has found some success in efforts to undo Jesus Christ's position in heaven is to get his church people to think that they should sit back and wait around and do very little kingdom work. And not be such loyal subjects as maybe we should. Even though the Holy Spirit is the helper and he leads the church into all truth and is convicting the world left and right, some decide the best best thing to do is to take it easy and wait. Wait. Come, Lord Jesus. We can't do it. He will have to do it himself. We shouldn't try to change all people and society so that his will would be done on earth as in heaven. No. We will harbor our religion for us, our homes, and within the four walls of our churches. And maybe we'll get a couple of non-believers to switch to our side and have it with us. But society overall, uh -uh, it will have to wait for Jesus to enforce his will at the second coming. 
there's a twofold deception tied to that idea. The one is pietism, which is kind of the internalization of one's religion. But it's also been combined with the ridiculous intrusion, the ridiculous intrusion and prevalence of an escapist invention called the rapture of the church. That was made up in the 19th century. And yet, so many believe it today. Of of all the things I mentioned here, so antinomianism, pietism, those are arguable. You can see how people might argue a case for it. There's some good to pietism, to having your religion internalized within you, convicting you, making making your soul and and God's uh, relationship to you important. That's all good. There's even an argument to be made for antinomianism with a little a. I mean, some of the things in the Old Testament were fulfilled. We don't still sacrifice animals, etc., because Jesus Christ fulfilled that. So there's an argument to be made in that in that manner, but the idea that somehow Jesus will secretly have us disappear from the earth before his coming back to ju- for judgment, that's incredibly idiotic. I, 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 don't, I don't know how the church ever just got hoodwinked into thinking there was value in that doctrine. Again, it was 18-something when that came on the scene. Apparently, through two gals that had a vision and was built from there by dispensationalists. So to honor Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit and the word of God, we must first abandon antinomianism, okay, and reestablish the necessity of God's law. Secondly, we must rid ourselves of pietism and the rapture. Both these cause us to look for escape rather than to to serve Jesus unashamedly. Thirdly, we need to identify and expose what is called radical two-kingdom theology. Radical two-kingdom theology. You see, there are some in the church who teach that the state, the governing officials, the magistrate, the state is not under obligation to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. They teach this. Or maybe more fairly, they teach that the state, okay, kings and governors and uh, prime ministers, legislators, city officials, that the state need not attempt to enforce God's law at all. They teach that the state is an institution created for believers and non-believers, and so its design is to govern without partiality shown to any particular religion. It governs, they say, in a secular manner, and therefore the church and Christians should not even try to change or fashion these governments of peoples to comply with Jesus Christ's government and God's commands. It's like they're out of bounds when they do. But this 
And again, there are more legitimate arguments made when we're dealing with this as a problem in the church. This, in all practicality, is saying that the kingdom of God's Son does not require every king to bow the knee to him, at least not yet. So he's not the king of kings and the Lord of lords, at least at this moment anyway, that we can measure and and hold, say, the state accountable to him. We can't hold the state accountable to him. Says radical two kingdom theology. We've got to leave them to make their own just decisions. So the teaching goes. And what this suggests is that if Jesus Christ doesn't expect kings and other magistrates to enforce his civil laws upon society, then we, the church, certainly should not try to influence them to do it either. It's like a hands-off, separate kingdom. And to a degree, we should leave it alone. Yet, if Jesus said the Holy Spirit convicts that the ruler of this world is judged then why would any lesser authority be permitted to to freely rebel? Satan gets judged, but rebellious kings do not. They're not called to repent and to administer justice, true justice. Yet this is the doctrinal argument of radical two-kingdom theologians. So the Western church has fallen prey to those four tactics these days, antinomianism, pietism, the escapist rapture, and radical two-kingdom teaching. Yeah, but guess what? Jesus doesn't agree with those things. And they will never foil his kingship. He's not going to do things any differently because men imagine fanciful doctrines. The enemy is only going to fool people, Christ's people, who I say must somewhat want to be fooled. Because you know what? The other great advantage of Jesus going to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit, is that the church gets guided into all truth. Verses 13 through 15. We can know things. That's the other thing we do as Christians. Can we really know? There's so, there's so many questions to ask. Can we really have the answers? Yes. We can know things. He will teach us. Verses 13 through 15 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In the end, I say this, you be a friend of God. You humble yourself under his mighty hand, you keep his word. Be wary of the arguments. Listen, be wary of the arguments that want to prevent the king from establishing his kingdom in the earth. Be wary of every argument that smells like that. They want to keep the king from establishing his kingdom in the earth. Because that smells like the devil. The Holy Spirit will be your helper. He will teach you if you want to be taught. But it's going to take time, spent time in study of God's word. Real time studying and learning. And some of the things you need to learn are different from those things you've been taught in the past. But this is true for many, many in the Western world. So we might as well get started. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would indeed uh, teach us as a congregation, teach the church, teach Christians, how to be upright and forthright and stand for you and to teach others about you and to call them to repentance, to offer them your peace treaty, King Jesus. And Holy Spirit, please convict. Convict first your church. Set it, set it straight. Lead us into all truth. And then convict the world around us that the gospel would go forth and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.